is the celebration of the day that Jesus began his descent into, or, well, Jerusalem's on a hill, so ascent into Jerusalem and set in motion what we know as the Passion Week, the week that would lead to Jesus' death on the cross, culminating in his resurrection from the dead, defeating the curse of sin, the hold of death, and the domain of Satan forevermore. Amen. As a gospel-preaching, Jesus-loving, Jesus-preaching, crazy-for-Jesus church, of course, we love the added attention that's given to Jesus and the rich gospel opportunities that are just shot through this entire week. It's a chance to celebrate Jesus. We have the Monday Thursday service, like we were sharing earlier. We're going to look at Jesus' last supper with his disciples before going to the cross, where he announced the new covenant in his blood and gave the signs that we're going to celebrate in a little bit after the preaching of the word to his church of the bread and the wine that we joyfully partake of each week. And Christians everywhere have been partaking of since that night in remembrance of the gospel. We're going to be doing that this Thursday. On Friday, we're going to be gathered together to remember the crucifixion. It's going to be a somber time, a time of reflection to remember the solemn act where the Lord paid the greatest price to ransom our souls and to free us from sin. And then Sunday, we will celebrate. And oh yes, we will celebrate. We're going to celebrate the miracle that the stone was rolled away. The tomb is empty. Jesus is risen. We are free. Whom the Son has set free is free indeed. We get to celebrate all of that. We're going to be celebrating the picture of his death and resurrection with the picture of baptisms. We've got six people lined up to be baptized on Easter as a testimony to that gospel that they have believed in, a picture of having died with Christ and being risen in Christ, incorruptible to eternal life. So it's a week where there are plenty of reminders. We celebrate truths that we celebrate year-round, proclaiming the good news here weekly, celebrating the gospel in our lives daily, but this is a week where we have plenty of visual reminders. And one of the things that you've probably noticed if you own a TV or an internet um, or you've been to a store with a magazine or you know somebody who has, um, that this week in particular is a week where TV shows, magazines, websites are all talking about the real Jesus or the historical Jesus as the people that like to act like they're smarty pants try to call them. I've got a couple of pictures that you guys have probably seen these magazines, right? They're very popular this time of year. They always recycle the same garbage year in and year out and slap a new cover on it and think that we're too dumb to realize it. And interestingly enough, their version of the real Jesus rarely ever lines up with the biblical picture and what the Bible has to say about the real Jesus. And you have to wonder where they're getting their information from. You have to wonder why they believe their sources are so much more reliable than the Bible. It's pretty fascinating that authors who spend the rest of the year writing about the newest iPhone that's coming out or who the Kardashians are dating at this given time, or Russian internet trolls, or any other rinse, wash, repeat cycle that they find sometime one week each year to be bona fide experts on the historical Jesus. 
And not only experts, but people who believe themselves to be more accurate than people who have studied the Bible their whole lives, even though they didn't even bother studying the Bible in preparation for their hard-hitting journalism. I'll never forget, a, a few years ago, you might remember when the Da Vinci Code was going to be the undoing of Christendom as we knew it. I was going to Moody Bible Institute at the time, and we did a whole semester of chapels on why we need to be armed to take out the Da Vinci Code. It's, isn't it hilarious when you think back at all the wasted stuff you've heard taught in a pulpit? You're like, well, that was important for all of five minutes, and now I'll never use it again. But <clears throat> all sorts of movies came out around the time of Easter with people wanting to piggyback on Dan Brown's um, hard-hitting um, fiction. I don't know how fiction could be hard-hitting, but it was. And um, it was all about who was the person next to Jesus at the Last Supper, who that person really was. Got a picture up there. And, and what they would debate is that the person seated to the right hand of Jesus had long hair, and he looked kind of feminine. So it was really a woman, and therefore Jesus was married, and yada, yada, yada. And this was a, actually a picture of Mary Magdalene. And one thing that amazed me is that the people could make it through an entire book or make it through an entire miniseries for the History Channel, yet they can't tell the difference between a painting and a photograph. I mean, I could have painted me into that picture. I could have painted E.T. into that picture. If, if you want to just Google something that's fascinating sometime, Google who's sitting at the right hand of Jesus at the Lord's Supper, and Google will just do its magic, and you will be thoroughly entertained, and that will be an hour you'll never get back in your lives. So what's the point of all of this? Um, if there is one, I'm not trying to beat up on secular culture. That's, that's not what we do here. I'm not trying to create an us and them mentality. You know, that's not how we roll. But how's this connect to this morning's passage? Very, very clearly. And I think you'll see that. It connects because each of the people that I mentioned think that they have some sort of hidden knowledge about who the true Jesus is. They think that they have some sort of knowledge or wisdom or enlightenment or whatever it is that you want to call it that gives them some sort of deeper or hidden understanding of who Jesus is that the plebs like us who are sitting in church on a Sunday morning just can't really understand. Well, Solomon said that there's nothing new under the sun, and that's exactly what Paul is dealing with here in Colossians chapter 2. Paul is dealing with some false teachers who are disrupting the faith of the Colossians because they would claim that they have hidden knowledge that's, un, that's able to unlock certain mysteries of the faith that were not available to the average thinker or the average person. And it was a giant shell game is what it was. It was a giant game of three-card Monty that they were playing with you. They would claim that they had special wisdom. Check out this circular reasoning. They would claim that they had special wisdom to be able to unlock these mysteries about Jesus, but that Jesus was the key to unlocking the special wisdom to helping you understand the mysteries about Jesus. Circular reasoning at its finest. And of course, you could only get that special wisdom from them or by buying their book or by subscribing to their podcast or 
The more things change, the more things stay the same. As David Byrne from the Talking Heads said, same as it ever was, same as it ever was. Man, that song is good. I just saw him in concert a couple weeks ago, and it was, who was singing that? Was that you, Gregory? Amen. CBGB back there. Thank you. And it was upsetting the faith of the people in Colossae, of this precious new church plant. And like I said last week, Paul is dealing with this as a skillful theologian, but he's also dealing with this with the love of a pastor. These false teachers would paint their hidden knowledge of Jesus as a mystery, a word that Paul is going to reclaim. I love this. Paul takes the word that they had perverted and used wrongfully, and he reclaims this and says, this is a gospel word now, and I'm going to stake my claim on showing you that Jesus is the mystery, and the way that we know him is not through your special knowledge, it's through the scriptures, and that genuinely knowing him results in Christ-like community. So look with me at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. It says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches and full assurance of understanding that are in the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ, which is Christ, excuse me. But Paul really struggled because he didn't want anything. I think you can understand this. He didn't want anything to get in the way of them understanding who the true, authentic Jesus is. And he doesn't just call it a struggle. He calls it, look at verse 1 again. He says, this is a great struggle that I have. Paul is really disturbed in his spirit when he thinks about this, and he wanted you to know about it. Think about this. Paul is sitting in prison at this moment. He had any number of things that he could have been preoccupied with. And he has this great struggle in his spirit about what's going on in the Colossian church. And the struggle that he had was kind of twofold. He wanted the Colossians to know the true Jesus. And kind of an extension of that, he didn't want them to get gypped on what it means and looks like to know the real Jesus. And I get that. I get that. I hope you get that. I struggle with it as well. To use Paul's words, I struggle greatly. When I see churches boasting in things that are actually making Jesus seem more distant than what Jesus did to come and bridge the gap between us and the Father and be able to bring us and reconcile us to God, it frustrates me. When I see that churches are spending their efforts to make God seem further away rather than what a church is supposed to do to lead people into an authentic relationship with Jesus and to present them, as we looked at in the last verse of the previous chapter, mature in Christ, it makes me sad. Or when churches just stop doing, uh, start doing unnecessary things that goof up their testimony both to the church and to the world, it's a struggle in my spirit and it should be a struggle in yours. I pray often as I drive by places that have just abandoned the truth of the gospel that the Lord would shut their doors and give us their building because they're a waste of real estate and somebody needs to tell them, get back to the gospel or you're a waste of real estate and give it to somebody who's going to preach the truth of God's word. But this kind of stuff happens all the time. Think about the impact of legalism on the church. Didn't it do exactly what we're looking at in this passage? You say, well... 
I know that God said that the way that you worship him like this, is like this, but I've got hidden knowledge about hidden rules, hidden rules that only I keep. And if you follow and keep the rules like me, then you'll have a hidden relationship. Where they think that, you know what, if we just have the, we need to make Jesus cool movement. And if we make him cool enough, that's what's going to make young people return to the church. Do you know, in, in case you're, I don't know, let's just pick an age of where anybody older than it is old and anyone younger than it is young. I'm going to go at 39. I'm just picking that number out of thin air. Um, but if you're, if you're older than 39 and therefore qualify as, as old, did you, do you know that young people see right through the let's make Jesus cool sham and it's really cheesy to them and it's offensive and um, it's, it's just tokenism across a major broad level and it's just no good for anybody. It's, it's really, it's, it's a bad, bad look. It's like me wearing a bright yellow jumpsuit. You don't want to see that, man. There's just, it's a bad look and it's a struggle in my spirit. Or when we look at every new fad that comes into the church and feel like that should be what, you know, our church is going to be all about this. We're going to be all about small groups. Well, now we're not going to be about small groups anymore. We're going to be about missional communities. And now we're not going to be about missional communities anymore. We're going to be about LTG groups. They're the same thing. We just repackage them every couple of years and have somebody with a cool hairdo and enough tattoos to tell you that Christians have never done it that way before. Um, it burns people out. It makes God seem distant, and it makes people feel disinterested. That's why we greatly struggle. I used to work at this men's clothing store when I went to Bible college, and it was, it was a nice men's clothing store, like high-end clothes. And as a guy who my fashion sense is whether to put on my dress car hearts or my regular Carhartt sweatshirt when I come to work. I actually had the conversation with my wife yesterday about whether I should wear my dress dickies. So, I mean, that's my fashion sense. I was out of place at this men's clothing store, but I developed meaningful friendships while working there, but it was a bit tricky at first, because to my knowledge, and I was informed of this regularly by my coworkers, I was the only heterosexual male that was working there. Everybody called me Rev, which is short for Reverend, because they knew I was going to Bible college at, at, at the time, and that I was um, studying to be a pastor, and because I was always just talking to them about Jesus, every opportunity that I got. And, and one day, a man actually came up to me and said, hey, Rev, how does it feel to be the, the token, straight, white, Anglo-Saxon Protestant on our staff? <laughs> felt good, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I didn't mind. White Anglo-Saxon Protestants haven't been on the underbelly of too much throughout our history, so I deserved that shot. But after a time of working there, my coworkers would open up about their experiences with the Church of Jesus Christ. And, and most of these people were temp, uh, students at Temple University, and they would tell me about these preachers that would come and stand there and preach this message of hatred and condemnation and judgment. And I would ask them, what did you hear when you were listening to these preachers? And their main takeaway was that God wanted nothing to do with them because of their lifestyle, and that if there is a God, he hates them. I, I can remember just several times 
driving home with tears in my eyes. And I'm not talking about the tears that preachers talk about that are metaphorical tears that just mean that they felt something inside. I mean, like, real tears in in my eyes because it would break me that that was their perception of who God was. And and I can identify with what Paul says here in verse 1, that he struggled greatly. And when I would talk with them, I wouldn't hesitate to call sin, sin, or to say what the Bible had to say about their decisions and to open up the scriptures with them. But I loved these people. They were my friends. So I would share the truth about sin, but always share the good news of the hope that we have through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that Jesus came to pay for sin, both mine and and theirs, and that mine was no more or less egregious than theirs was. But the thing that grieved me the most is that these people were coming out and preaching a message in the name of Jesus, making God seem further from his people, not closer. It would make me think of the words, many of the words of Jesus from Matthew 23, but here's just one of them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for neither you yourselves enter in or allow those who would to go in. I know that people are going to love their sin and reject Jesus. The Bible's clear on that. He warned us ahead of time. But let's make sure that it's actually the real Jesus that they're being presented and the real gospel that they're being presented so that if they're going to deny something, they're actually denying the real thing, not our silly made-up version of it. And that's Paul's struggle here. So all that to kind of paint the framework of this is when Paul's saying, I greatly struggle. This is what he's getting at. Anything that makes God seem more distant rather than reaching his arms out, wanting to have relationship with you and be closer with you is a distortion of the biblical Jesus. Amen? Whether it's legalism, whether it's pseudo-intellectual liberalism, whether it's any of the other faces that it might take. And Paul struggled and felt compelled to use the book of Colossians to set the record straight. He needed to share who the true Jesus was because they were painting a faulty picture of who Jesus was. In their faulty view, like I said, is that they made it seem like you needed secret or hidden knowledge to be able to really grow close to God. So what fruit does that end up producing in the people that are hearing it? What fruit does it end up producing in the church? Well, it makes you feel that your walk with Christ is ordinary, resulting in feeling like your walk with Christ is less than. Anybody ever have somebody make you feel that way? That's why I just have such a just... I want to hurt you kind of feeling that comes up in my spirit when I go to churches and you hear the worship leaders saying, come on, wake up. How come none of you are worshiping? You're just like, shut up. Like, I was worshiping until you had to go on that rant. Now I have to check my spirit because I'm filled with frustration. Um, Anybody that makes it sound like your walk with Christ is ordinary because they have some kind of made-up standard which you're not meeting in their eyes, is doing a disservice to you. And it stinks, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's an awful feeling. I don't need that, but thank you, Sid. You are such a servant. I'm baptizing that guy next week. Amen? I'm going to hold him down for a good long while. Woo! I can't wait to baptize Sid. That's going to be a blast. But, and 
they would make it feel like you had to go to these gurus so that you could get their secrets to unlock the deeper spiritual life. And all that does is make God feel and seem distant. Or that he's only close to a select group of Christians and it creates a caste system within churchianity that is not the biblical narrative. So Paul, throughout the book of Colossians, paints such a careful, detailed picture to give you a biblical Christology. In fact, I would say Colossians probably gives you more about the person of Jesus than any other book in the Bible. Because the way that you deal with a faulty view is to present a true one. And that's the way that you deal with a less than Jesus is you present the true, authentic Jesus. In the analogy that I gave about the clothing store, I couldn't correct every false teaching that these people were hearing. Because not only did I not hear all the false teachings that they were hearing, but I'm hearing it secondhand or thirdhand through them. You couldn't possibly correct that, but I didn't have the responsibility to correct that. My responsibility was to present to them the true Jesus and to present the pure gospel and to present grace and truth and to put context around them. And an awesome thing happens when we present the true Jesus. Jesus said, if the Son of Man be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. We can't refute every false belief out there, but we can do what Paul did in Colossians. We can present the beautiful, majestic, transcendent, holy, loving, perfect person of Jesus Christ. And then step out of the way and let the Holy Ghost do his thing. So that's what Paul does here. Let's look at verse 2 again. It says, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all of the riches of full assurance of the understanding that is the knowledge of God's mystery in Christ. So Paul wanted them to know how awesome knowing the authentic Jesus really is. And he gives you three reasons why it's awesome right there in verse 2, that through knowing Jesus, their hearts would be encouraged. And I'm talking about real encouragement, folks. The kind of encouragement that comes from knowing the unshakable, unmovable one rather than setting your hope on the shakable foundation of this world. Not the kind of encouragement that comes with, if everything would just fall right in my life, then I would be encouraged for once. People that walk around with that as their predominant worldview, you wonder why you can't get out of the rut of complaining. Because never, nothing's ever going to be perfect and right in your life. Not this side of glory. Sin has marred that. Paul wants them to have true Christ-driven, Christ-centered encouragement. Second one is he says he wants their hearts to be knit together in love through knowing Jesus. This has a couple of different angles. Knit together in love for God, meaning that we're knit together in love toward the Father through a relationship with the Son as led by the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's this Trinitarian love for God being knit together, but also manifesting itself in Christ-like biblical community where we begin to see our hearts knit together with other people. This is something that happens when somebody comes to know Jesus, and it's beautiful, and it's kind of unexplainable. It's sort of like the Grinch who stole Christmas when you see that his heart, and it says, and his heart grew three sizes that day, except our heart didn't grow three sizes because that would mean that you had a heart to grow to begin with and you never had a heart because Ephesians 2 made it clear that the thing in your chest was dead so it couldn't have grown. It needed to be replaced and you needed to be given a new one. And that's what happens. And as you accept that, something awesome happens. You start to be knit together in love. 
Now, where deadness reigned, love is replacing it. And we can love because what? He first loved us, right? This is part of the beauty of knowing the true, authentic Jesus. And the third thing that he gives from verse 2 is he said he wanted them to know the riches of the full assurance that is theirs in Christ. This is one of the most theological reasons that Paul struggled, the struggle that we read back in verse 1 so much, is because they're being painted a false portrait of Jesus. We preached a whole message on assurance two weeks ago, so I'm not going to go too deeply into this verse, but assurance comes from right belief and right practice. It comes from orthodoxy and orthopraxy. We're not talking about perseverance when we talk about assurance. We're talking about two doctrines that are related but different, but it has to be right belief in the right truth. Jesus. Another reason that he wanted them to know how awesome Jesus was, and this is my favorite point of the whole message, is because Jesus is awesome. That's the point of the text. Look at verse 3. This is so cool. He's, oh, he wants you to know the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And Jesus is referred to as this mystery. And remember that mystery was something that the false teachers were trying to use to be able to prop up their false teachings, saying that they had the key to the mystery. And Paul just takes their legs out from underneath them. I mean, he sweeps the feet like Ralph Macchio. It's awesome. He says, no, Jesus is the mystery. You, you don't need some mystery to be able to unlock Jesus. Jesus is the mystery that unlocks everything. And the Holy Spirit is who reveals that and impresses that upon hearts that were formerly dead in our trespasses and sins. A mystery that has been for all of history. All of history has been pointing to the mystery that is Jesus Christ. A mystery that all of Scripture has been pointing to from cover to cover. Man, one of the things that I just owe so much joy to the gospel-centric movement that has come into the church is the joy of not reading the Bible like a bunch of disconnected stories, but seeing that it is all just one gigantic, magnificent story about the person of Jesus, that he was always the mystery from cover to cover in the book. That's what he was talking about back at the end of chapter one when he's saying that the Gentiles were waiting for this mystery to be revealed. That They saw that Jesus and the gospel was something that was always available to them, and God always had a plan for their redemption. A mystery that each of us who have come to know him, we can say that all of our lives have been pointing to that moment, can't we? I, think, I want you to think back to when you came to know Jesus. Really, think back on it. That's a really healthy thing. Even if you're like Fred and it was 94 years ago, he still remembers that moment when he came to know Jesus. I just wanted to see if you were sleeping, brother. And, and as you reflect back on that and the sweetness of it, Christ was the mystery that made all the longings of my heart make sense. Can you identify with that? I always had this craving. I remember when I went away to rehab before coming to know Jesus, and they said, what are you addicted to? Just more. Like, whatever it is, just anything more that I can get to not have to feel what I feel being alone in my flesh is what I'm addicted to. And I always had a craving, and I tried to fill it with 
anything and everything. That's why the book of Ecclesiastes just ministered to me so early on, because that was Solomon's story. He's saying, I tried everything to be able to fill this itch, yet all of it was vanity. All of it was chasing after the wind. That the more you try, the emptier you actually feel, and it confuses the mystery even more. But then, what happened? Jesus' love broke through. And he showed me that he was the mystery that my heart was always longing for. How? Did he speak this audibly or did he give me some kind of special knowledge, which would seem to go against the very thing that we're preaching about here? No. He satisfied me. That's how I knew. Can you identify that? And I'm talking about a satisfaction that's not like any other satisfaction. Because you know what Jesus does when he satisfies you? This is so amazing. It's the, the paradox of the filling of the Holy Spirit. He satisfies you, but then makes you hungry for more at the same time. And somehow, even though it's a paradox, it's beautiful. And I, even though I can't quite wrap my mind around how it is that something can fill you, yet make you hunger to be filled, I know that it's a biblical truth. John 4 goes on about that quite a bit, if you want to read about it. it, it, it it's kind of like, you know... Like a mystery, like Paul's referring to here, right? How one could satisfy yet make you hunger and thirst for greater satisfaction even still. He's saying, I want you to have full understanding of this mystery because that's the encouragement that he spoke of back in verse 2. That's the heart being knit together that he spoke of back in verse 2. That's where the assurance that comes from that he spoke of back in verse 2. But um, yeah, I'm probably going to close with this thought. And not only did he want you to know that Jesus is awesome, he wanted you to know that knowing Jesus is awesome. Look again at verse 3. It says, in whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And that's awesome. The more intimately we know Jesus the more we're able to explore the depths and riches and treasures that are to be found in him. It wasn't through some secret knowledge that unlocked intimacy and gave you some kind of secret knowledge of this higher power. It was through pressing into and abiding in the vine that is Jesus. Simple biblical Christianity. The treasures that come from knowing Jesus in this passage, wisdom that he spoke of back at the end of verse 2, and knowledge that comes from a full assurance. So some of the treasures that are to be found in Christ, not all of them listed here. I just thought of some of them in my devotional time and was just taking them down this week. As we already stated, wisdom and knowledge are the two from this text. But how about peace? Peace like a river that is unlike any other peace. That's a treasure that's yours in Christ. How about joy? Joy that first Peter called joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. How about acceptance? You don't have to fight for acceptance or struggle for it because you have been fully accepted in the beloved Ephesians chapter 1. How about full atonement? Can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. How about rest? Man, this, this rest that is our treasure in Christ. I, I, I read a verse in Hebrews this week. It says, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest is also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. 
That rest is yours in Jesus. It's one of the treasures. How about love? The ability to receive love and give love. The ability to both love our Father through the Son and the Holy Ghost and to be able to love others who have been loved by him and others who are still in process. Then there's the theological benefits of knowing Jesus. We are adopted. How's that for a treasure? We're propitiated. We're expiated. We're justified. You are redeemed out of the marketplace of slavery. How's that for a treasure? You are rescued. You have been justified and forever declared not guilty because of Christ and your new creations. And according to Ephesians chapter 1, this treasure that he speaks of here in Colossians 2, 3, you're going to spend eternity plumbing the depths and the riches of it. And that's why I said that knowing Jesus is awesome. Those are just 17 things that I listed. But it's like when Tim Keller says when he gives a list. Take it for what it's worth. It's just a list that some man made up. I could have given you 117 if we wanted to be here for as long as Ezra preached. And I'd love to do that someday. And to conclude our passage, he didn't want any of them to be, amen, sister, to be distracted from the fact that Jesus is awesome. Look at verses 4 and 5. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. And this is a total tangent that I didn't plan on saying, but when you plan things as often as a pastor does, people always love to give you the, I can't make it, but I'll be there with you in spirit. And I think what they're doing is claiming what Paul said here in Colossians you notice that he's using words like labored and struggled? Like you just sitting home in your PJs because you don't feel like going out in the rain is not what Paul was talking about with being with you in spirit. So tangent over. But he didn't want them to be deluded. He's saying, and, and not just deluded, he's saying that these are plausible arguments that are deluding you. So it's not, these people aren't idiots that are coming to them. They're presenting the arguments that if you deviated from the truth or didn't have your nose in the truth, you could be detracted or deluded from the truth. So though Paul shares his concern, ultimately he finishes our passage for today by saying that he rejoiced that they stood firm in their faith in Jesus. They were firm on Jesus. And brothers and sisters, that is my prayer for you this week. So a couple of application right from the passage. Believe in the real Jesus, not your figment of Jesus, not the convenience Jesus, not the I got a genie in a headlock Jesus. Believe in the real, authentic, holy, awesome, perfect, matchless Jesus. Number two, be encouraged by the real Jesus. Not just encouraged by everything lining up the way that your five-year plan thought that it should line up. Be encouraged by Jesus. If you were able to be encouraged by your five-year plan, you wouldn't need Jesus to be your encouragement. Jesus loves you enough to destroy your five-year plan, to show you don't rely on your five-year plan. Rely on Jesus and be encouraged by it. Be built up through your faith in Jesus. Be built up in love, rather, through your faith in Jesus. Look at your heart every once in a while and say, hey, if I, if I look this and measure this against any previous time, is my heart growing in love? Am I becoming a hard curmudgeon of a Christian 
who the only time I ever really want to talk to other Christians is to let them know what they're not doing that disappoints me? Or is your heart growing in authentic, gospel-drenched love, humble love towards your brothers and sisters and towards your Lord? Be fully assured through a saving faith in the gospel of Jesus. If you're here today and you don't know if that is talking about you, that's why we celebrate Easter each year. It is the best news. You'll hear it called good news. It's, it's the only news that really matters. It's the great news that Jesus Christ came, lived the perfect life that you couldn't, died the death that you deserved, rose from the grave because you could not, and then gave you the life that you couldn't attain through any other way other than faith in him. That's the good news. And if you believe in that, like Paul said at the end of chapter 1, like he says here in chapter 2, like 1 John says throughout the entire book, you could be fully assured in Jesus. And the last one, be continually amazed and captivated by the treasure of knowing and being known by Jesus. Every once in a while, I get to take my wife out on a date I'm talking a nice date, not the dates where you just run over to the Irish pub down the street and get a Reuben. I'm talking about when you, when you get all fancied up, and I'll just catch a glimpse of her and say, that's the beauty that I married. And she, for some reason, lowered her standards to marry a knucklehead like me. When's the last time you caught a fresh glimpse of Jesus like that and said, wow, that's the beauty that brought me in to the bride of Christ. And for some reason, as Philippians 2 says, he humbled himself and lowered his standards because he wanted relationship with you and me. Have you been amazed by that Jesus? Have you been in awe of that Jesus? Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you humbled yourself and became obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. If by doing so, you might bring us to the Father and give us eternal life. We celebrate that in this meal that we are about to partake of, representing your body broken for us and your blood poured out for the remission of sins. And we thank you for it. We thank you that next week we don't only celebrate your death, but we celebrate the fact that you walked out of the tomb and that you are alive and that you have granted us life forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.